Great. Thanks, everybody. Uh, my name is Doug Amith. I'm the Internet Analyst at JP Morgan. Um, welcome to our keynote discussion with Uber CEO Dara Khosr Shahi. Uh, so Uber's mission is to create opportunity through movement, and it's changing how people, food, and things move through cities. The company's done more than 15 billion trips, and Uber is the largest global rideshare company and the biggest food delivery service outside of China. Dara joined Uber as CEO in 2017. He previously was CEO of Expedia for 12 years, where he grew that company into one of the world's largest online travel businesses. And prior to that, Dara was CFO of both IEC Travel and IEC overall. So welcome, Dara. You just made me feel old, Doug. Thank you. Well, uh, I'm kind of right there with you. Because um, one of our first discussions many years ago was when you were uh, CFO of IEC. So. Uh, we've we've evolved. Um, so first thing, just to mention to the uh, to the audience, uh, and most of you know this, uh, there's a blue ask a question feature in the conference session. So uh, conference session page. So just feel free to uh, put questions in there and I'll do my best to work them in the discussion. So uh, let's get started. Um, Dar, there's a lot going on in your business. One uh, Q was your best quarter of bookings ever. Um, Rides are ramping as the world reopens. Delivery remains very strong with accelerating triple-digit growth in 1Q. Uh, you've got a redesigned super app. Uh, you're targeting EBITDA break-even sometime this year. Uh, so with all of that, what, what are you most excited about here? Well, I think, Doug, you, you kind of said it. What, what I'm really excited about is that it, it feels like the, fun, the company is finally hitting on all cylinders. Uh, and with our delivery business, you know, we were always very, very um, bullish on our delivery business. But there was some d debate as to how big is delivery going to be compared to mobility as well. And what we've seen with the pandemic, which has been incredibly difficult for so many people, us included, and our company included, is it served as a, a pretty incredible accelerator as it related to delivery overall. Um, it made the bets that we had made on a delivery business pre-pandemic, which I think some investors weren't sure about, uh, it, it, it kind of solidified those bets as excellent investments. Uh, and now we have a mobility business uh, where we are the global leader. We're in a strong position in every single market that we operate in. Pre-pandemic, we had demonstrated our ability to deliver margins and growth in that business, 30% plus EBITDA margins. So that mobility business is coming back and it's coming back not just in the US, but it's coming back in Europe and many other geographies as well. Obviously there's work to do. We don't take anything for granted, but we, we like the mobility trends. Uh, the delivery business now has scale. Uh, we are in a number one position. I'd say we were fairly late in the delivery game. We had a hypothesis, which is the Uber brand, uh, our ops team, our geographical position, our ability to execute, our technology, ML learning, et cetera, that we've got would position us to win in delivery. And, and we are now number one in more markets than we ever have been. Uh, and we have a clear path to profitability as it relates to our delivery business. And then I do think that the pandemic forced us to make some tough decisions. In hindsight, I believe that those tough decisions were the right decisions. Uh, I think we are tighter as a company in terms of uh, our, our, our cost base. We have taken the opportunity to automate a lot more processes uh, while improving the customer experience. And we have gone out of some businesses that, that you could argue have been non-core. So where we sit now is 
uh, a business that is actually um, quite efficient operationally, a uh, business that has very, very significant upside, both in terms of mobility and delivery, which have adjacencies that we're act- we've actively been investing in. So they're not a theory. They're in process right now. We have a freight business that we believe is, is has a very clear path to top-line growth and profitability as well. Uh, and we're going to underlie it all with uh, infrastructure, technology team that's second to none, and a mobile and a membership program that can give access at lower costs with uh, with improved benefits to a customer base um, across our portfolio. So we like our position. Now it's a matter of execution. Okay, great. Uh, so a, a lot to dig into there. Um, let's let's start with mobility. Um, as people are returning to Ubers, uh, what will they notice most about how the experience? And service has changed, and and just what features and functionality will stand out to riders here? Well, I think the um, uh, the, the biggest factor that will change is Uber is is looking much broader as a service, right? We've gone from a car hire business. You now have Uber Eats available as well. You'll have Reserve. You have the ability to send packages. You'll have uh, transportation and mass transit uh, as well. We've improved our reserve functionality where you can reserve a car in advance up 30, uh, 30 days in advance and making sure that the driver is there 15 minutes uh, early. Uh, we're introducing a car rentals feature that we're launching as well. So I think it's a much broader service. Uh, what we're seeing is that as we broaden the choices on, on our mainline mobility app, the frequency of interactions that our users have uh, to open up that app, that that frequency increases, and with that increase in frequency, we can create uh, better loyalty over a period of time. So we think we think that users are going to notice all of that. You know, some of the not so good stuff that they're going to notice is uh, ETAs are higher than we want them to be. Uh, surge level prices have increased as we are as we have not seen driver supply keep up with uh, with the demand growth in the U.S. In the rest of the world, actually, we're pretty good. And in you know, certain places in London, et cetera, we're back to 90% of pre-pandemic levels, and the supply position is great. So the supply position in the U.S. is still something that we're working on. It's definitely getting better, uh, but we're not happy with the ETAs and the price levels uh, that we see, and that's something that we're certainly going to invest to, to improve on. And then the last thing that I would say is there's a lot that we work on that's actually under kind of the cover, so to speak, that consumers aren't necessarily going to notice, but actually has the greatest impact uh, on the service. Because anytime you introduce something, you kind of think about the impact area. You know, if you think about Reserve, which is a product that we're really excited about, you know, airport trips are about 15% of GB. They're a little bit less on trips because airport trips tend to be high GB per trip. And so if you hypothesize that Reserve can be 60% 60% of airport trips, et cetera. It's, you know, it's a nice business, but it's a single digit por- portion of the business. A lot of the biz- of the core technology that we work on, for example, uh, we have, we now power our estimated time of arrival, um, uh, our ETA models now with a true kind of deep global deep learning algorithms. Uh, and there's traditional machine learning. It's kind of tree-based decision-making, this deep, these deep learning algorithms now have beaten uh, a bunch of these highly, highly trained algorithms in an incredibly short amount of time. 
they have increased, for example, the accuracy of our ETAs by 2%. Uh, it's like, you know, a 13-year-old beating a 23-year-old in one-on-one basketball who's, you know, 23-year-old is at the prime of their life and a 13-year-old beats them. It's like the LeBron James of algorithms, right? And the it's a global algorithm both for mobility and delivery, uh, and it, it essentially can learn all around the world across two business segments. So you've got like a LeBron James that has the biggest gym available and he's still 13 and he's only going to get better and he has access to more data than anyone has, has access to. So like those kind of improvements in the service are not going to be visible, but are fundamental not to use cases that might apply, might apply to five to 10% of your experiences, they are, they're applicable to every single use case getting incrementally better. That's the kind of stuff that really sets us apart. And ultimately, if you ask me, like, what excites me the most about the stuff we're working on? It's that stuff. It's core to every single experience. And we just have a structural advantage over anyone else in building this kind of tech. Okay, great. Um, let, let's talk about how that's playing into recent mobility trends. Uh, the, the pace of recovery picked up in March, uh, and you saw gross bookings accelerate in April, increasing 5% month over month. Uh, you also saw U.S. ride volume increase month over month in April. Um, what are you seeing uh, three weeks into May, uh, and should we expect month over month increases in both gross bookings and trips really for several months here? Yeah, I think that's certainly our expectation. You never know, you know, what real life looks like, especially in a pandemic recovery. Uh, but we've seen pretty consistent improvements. Um, we're seeing nice improvement as it relates to, to the supply situation. Uh, more drivers coming on the road, more supply hours. Uh, and most weeks are essentially best weeks ever on the mobility side of the business. And, and we're tracking to a good rate so that we can exit going into the second half of the year at, um, at rates that we'll be quite happy about. And just to clarify, most weeks are best weeks um, since COVID. Correct. Yes, thank you. Okay, sorry. Okay, just want to make sure. Um, all right, so when you think about uh, the recovery, uh, kind of with that in mind, um, April was 68% of April 19 levels, um, but then you've got markets like Miami and New York where during weekdays you're fully recovered. Um, Miami's growing, I think, on an overall basis. Uh, New York is back to around 70-ish percent type of levels. Um, what are the key takeaways from, from those markets? I think the key takeaway is that as, as markets open up, people use Uber, and usually Uber is coming back faster than the alternatives. I think people have seen the investments that we made in safety. So even though people are feeling safer in general, um, they, they see the care that we've taken in making sure that your personal safety is taken care of in, in every way. Uh, and we are seeing, you know, it's pretty predictable. Market opens up, Uber comes back, and Uber comes back pretty fast. And really, the return is modulated by supply, not demand. We are seeing weekday and weekend uh, use cases come back uh, most quickly. Party hours, dinner hours, et cetera, trail a little bit the weekday weekend that in, in many cities are already at, at 100%. And then we're seeing airport trips, again, trail. So whereas airports pre-pandemic were about 15% of bookings, they're probably closer to 10% of bookings, and it's 10% of bookings that haven't yet returned to normal. Um, but all of the trends there for us are, are pretty positive. 
Uh, and we see the same thing, you know, whether it's a New York or a Miami, you know, London now is uh, basically, you know, 90% recovered in a lot of these use cases, weekend, weekday uh, use cases as well. So we expect, you know, what's new is the U.S. is coming back, but now we're seeing the U.K. come back very quickly. Germany, a bunch of other European countries are coming back and Asia x India looks really good as well. So the the portfolio is performing at uh, at pretty positive levels right now. Okay, and then what are you seeing in terms of market share? Uh, just when you think across different geos, um, and then also as higher value riders reengage with the service, um, and you know, is is the mix skewing a little bit more toward premium? Yeah, we had expected that um, with higher value uh, consumers coming back. Uh, we would see a tailwind as it related to coming out of COVID. We actually tightened up our pricing um, to some extent going to COVID because some of the high value users uh, had a, had a more of a tendency to stay home. We are seeing a tailwind there. So I would describe our category position trends as constructive. Um, most, you know, most of the competition we're seeing in markets, certainly the competition that we're seeing in the U.S. is pretty rational competition, which is, much more focused on, hey, let's take advantage of the category coming back versus focusing on one competitor or another competitor. You're seeing similar themes in many other markets. Uh, and I'd say category position trends, both in mobility and delivery are, uh, are, are positive. Okay, um, let, let's talk about driver supply. Uh, you've hit on it a little bit here. Um, certainly been a big topic in our discussions with investors. Um, you know, it sounds like things are improving, but if you can just give us more of an update on how things are trending, uh, and I guess really what gives you the confidence in having these issues um, mostly resolved uh, in by the third quarter? Yeah, so I think we're we're um, we're confident in our ability to execute. Uh, when we've surveyed our drivers, ninety uh, percent of them have said that they intend to come back post pandemic. You know, so that that's a that's a good healthy number. Um, 80% have said that they're going to come back once they get vaccinated. Uh, generally, because of demographics and maybe other factors, our driver vaccination rates trail a little bit our, our rider vaccination rates, but they're catching up pretty quickly. So I think it's just a matter of, of the population getting vaccinated. And to some extent, that's why you see us take such a bold step forward in terms of giving rides to vaccinations, et cetera. It's the right thing to do for the country, but it's also, you know, we want to represent, you know, the demographic that often uh, uh, that often drives and, and we don't think economic opportunities should get in the way of, of health opportunities. So what we're seeing now is the intent is there, the earnings opportunities are there. I think the Biden administration is doing a great job in terms of continuing to drive vaccinations and informations for, for all Americans. Uh, and, as a, and, and then combine that with our efforts, you know, we're very much focused on the driver funnel, easing the driver funnel, how drivers get on board, uh, proactively contacting drivers uh, and, and getting them back on the road, resurrecting drivers as well, targeting drivers who we think are more likely to contribute more supply hours, drivers who will drive 20, 30, 40 hours a week. And when you put this all together uh, and surge levels that are you know, helping uh, earnings levels, 
probably since we since we started our activity, you know, the number of drivers that we have on the system and the and the amount of supply hours that we have are is probably up twenty five percent. And I think if those trends continue by the second half of the year, our volumes are going to be quite healthy and are going to support what we see uh, as a EBITDA profitable business. Okay. Um, let, let's talk about some of that impact um, just in terms of the numbers. Uh, you talked about the, the $250 million investment in driver supply, um, which we think um, pretty much all of that comes in 2Q. Um, but the incremental component here you laid out at earnings could reduce the mobility take rate uh, by about 150 basis points um, to about 20% in in 2Q. Um, I guess, first, how confident are you that the investment allocates actually enough dollars uh, toward driver incentives? Um, and then how do you offset, uh, what are the ways you could offset some of that take rate impact? Yeah, so I think uh, we're confident in that we've done the math, right? It's, it's you can have an idea of where you think volumes are, where you think demand is going to be Q3, Q4. That's a guess. But then based on that, you can estimate the number of supply hours you need, the number of drivers that you need on the on the road, and we're tracking on a week-on-week basis uh, driver activations, driver resurrections, driver retention, and supply hours on a week-to-week basis. And everything that we've seen is, hey, we got work to do. Um, this is not a passive endeavor, but we're on track. And when we look at the rest of the world, hey, is this a problem that's going to crop up in uh, in a UK or in a France? It isn't. The driver supply is coming back and driver supply in some of those countries tends to be more full time, you know, more of a vocation for drivers versus uh, the U.S. that that has a lot of part time drivers. And then I think, you know, we've seen cycles before. This is obviously a um, a very fast cycle and driver supply and demand tends to trail uh, the cycles both on the upside and on the downside. But the laws of economics and supply and demand are going to apply in a pre-pandemic world and in a post-pandemic world. Um, Our issue in putting in incentives right now is about accelerating the normal rate at which drivers will come into this marketplace because we want to make sure our customers have the best experience, because we want to make sure ETAs come down. We want to make sure average surge levels come down, percentage of session surge and unfulfilled rates all of those come down. And all of those numbers, while they are not where we want to be in terms of a healthy marketplace aspiration, those numbers are all headed in the right direction. So when I put the picture together, you know, teams are all hands on deck. They're executing, uh, you know, day and night. Uh, but I like what, what I'm seeing. And mathematically, we're on a pretty good trend right now. Okay, great. Uh, so let's shift gears to delivery. Um, so one Q gross bookings accelerated on both a reported and organic basis. Um, how has this category just forever changed coming out of the pandemic? And you know, what does it mean for the sustainability of growth going forward? Well, I think the, the comparison that, that I make it is the e-commerce, right? It, it, it still surprises me that um, people aren't asking the question, oh, you know, is anyone going to order on walmart.com or Amazon against post-pandemic? Like, well, yeah, I think so. You know, once people use the product, the product is a really great product and the product is a sticky product. So when we analyze a growth rate for the delivery, which is outsized, listen, I don't expect us to grow these kinds of rates going forward. There are three significant elements. 
One is growth in audience. People who try the product, do they like it, et cetera, and the vast majority do. That growth is about 70% on a year-on-year basis. The comps get harder, uh, so that growth will come down, but that kind of core growth rate is about 70%. Then we have double-digit growth in terms of basket size, and we have double-digit growth in terms of frequency. All of those put on top of each other get you to the kinds of growth rates that we've most recently seen, which, which, are, which are genuinely great. Um, so what do I think is going to be sticky? I think audience is going to be sticky. I think once you use the product, you're going to use it again, uh, just like in e-commerce. You know, someone uses Walmart.com or Amazon, they're going to keep using it. Anyone who suggests otherwise will probably be wrong for the vast majority of users. Uh, so I think that's going to be sticky. Um, as it relates to basket sizes, we are seeing more families use a product. We're seeing more. It's not just a core urban product, but it's a product that is in suburbs, et cetera. And we have launched a number of attached features that encourage people to put more into their baskets. So we think the basket size increase is also going to be sticky. I think the question is going to be frequency. Um, instead of ordering Uber Eats three times a week, are you going to order two times a week and then go out? That's certainly possible. And I would personally expense, expect frequency to come down over a period of time as there are alternatives. And I think the offset for us there is our membership program and our CRM programs and targeting, et cetera, that, that we can drive to get frequency back up. So what I don't know is how much will the emergence of the alternative going out hurt frequency and how much will our membership penetration essentially help frequency because our members tend to uh, by significantly more than their pre-membership state uh, and what that looks like. So I think there'll be some headwinds, uh, but the category, the vast majority of the growth of the categories here stay. In our investor deck, we showed a couple of cities, New York, Sydney, and what the shape of the curve looks like. Now we're going into summer, and I think it's an early shape of the curve. So it is something that we will update. And again, I think frequency will take a hit but I think other areas are certainly going to be lasting. Okay, great. Um, so let's talk about uh, delivery, uh, the bottom line. Uh, you've said two of your top five markets are EBITDA profitable uh, and that the profitable markets were running at 4% margin uh, on gross bookings. Uh, what's the near-term path uh, just when you think about delivery profitability, which you've talked about uh, reaching sometime this year, and then if delivery demand softens, uh, to what degree can you pull back on the courier base or some other areas to offset that impact and still achieve that break-even level uh, later this year? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, our Q1 profitability as it relates to EATS was to some extent affected by uh, some of the winter storms. We had to get a bunch of couriers out there, et cetera. And, and actually demand grew faster, honestly, than we uh, than we anticipated. So we had to lean into courier supply a little bit more. Courier supply now, as it relates to delivery, is at a much, much improved place, is, is frankly at a, at a pretty good place. So we don't think we'll have to make that, those kinds of investments again, you know, unexpected investments, although weather could, could happen could happen anytime. Uh, the way I, I would break down the, the delta or the bridge to profitability is, is the following. First of all, we're going to have about 40 to 50 million in savings, quarterly savings, as it relates to the Postmates integration. That integration is on track. The technology operations teams have done a great job. We'll recognize that benefit in the second half of the year. Uh, we've talked about our advertising model. We expect it to be at 
100 million run rate in terms of revenue. Uh, by the time we exit the end of the year, we are going to be well above that. We're actually tracking well above that. Those are very high margin dollars that accrue to the bottom line that we could use to drive to profitability. And then for a little perspective, as far as the size and scale of this business, you know, we're at easily a 50 plus billion dollar run rate. We, we already talked about that at, at a bookings level. That's about called 12 and a half billion dollars on a quarterly basis. If we take down incentives by 1% on that 12 and a half billion, and, and it's multiples of that, uh, we would get 125 million to the bottom line in a quarter. So when I look at natural scale, cost per transaction Im- improvement, uh, integration, uh, integration benefits, media, and uh, pulling back on incentives or driving incentive efficiency uh, using more targeted models, I have plenty of leeway to get to a break even and continue to invest in this business. It's, it's such a big business. We have so many profit pools where pulling back isn't like, oh my God, I'm going to fundamentally hurt growth. There's always a trade-off. Uh, but we think it's a trade-off that we're quite comfortable making. Okay, great. Um, how do you think about the competitive landscape for delivery in the U.S. Uh, and, and some other markets now that we've seen you know, some degree of consolidation in the space? Uh, and then also just want to ask about, uh, we've seen some recent restaurant pricing changes, uh, just how you're thinking about how Uber Eats is positioned. Yeah, so... Uh, when I look at our category position as it relates to eat, Uber Eats, let's say versus two years ago, uh, it's actually remarkable the progress that we've made. Uh, we're now pretty much number one or number two in every single market that we operate in. It's exactly what we promised our investors. Um, I think we're now number one CP in eight out of our top 11 markets, uh, which again is a very, very significant improvement versus where we were. We're gaining share in markets like uh, the UK, we're CP1 in Spain. Uh, in France, et cetera, in, in Taiwan, in Japan. So our category position is in a very, very good place. When I look at the U.S., we have a you know, very strong competitor as it relates to DoorDash. There's someone that we respect. Uh, mm-hmm. And whereas, and what we see with CP in the U.S. is pretty much stale uh, or stable CP in the U.S. We hope to improve it. Uh, but what we see is, you know, we're confident of our position in the U.S. And I think in the U.S., we're really going to lean into the structural advantages that we have in terms of, you know, essentially the free traffic that Uber is sending over to Uber Eats, the brand that we have, and then the execution that we can drive on the on the back end. So generally, you know, CP on a global basis, the story keeps getting better. And we think it can continue to get better while we're driving profitability improvements going forward. Okay, um, so let's talk about that. You, you kind of just hit on it a little bit, um, but it, it feels like with mobility and delivery, you have a pretty compelling opportunity to differentiate uh, and gain share through subscriptions and, and through the super app. Uh, you've talked, I think, about 13% of new Eats users coming from rides, uh, but how do you envision these products just evolving to drive uh, greater cross-platform activity going forward? Well, I think I think you got to keep in mind the the power of compounding here, right? So, for perspective, um, I think on a daily basis now we get more first time eaters from our rides app, and and the rides volume is increasing, right? Rides is coming back even more, 
we get more first-time eaters from our rides business than than we get from all of our paid channels. You know, so if I were the competition, I'm competing against a player who has all paid channels for free. That uh, the effect on the business in one year is going to be somewhat, but but you know, it's 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 not huge. But if for seven, ten years I have essentially all my paid channels coming for free, the compounding effect there is pretty significant. So for us, the formula is, is pretty simple. Um, use our marketing channel and our brand to circulate uh, users amongst the, uh, the, the different services. Use um, essentially CRM and machine learning on different occasions, such as if you're going home, you can pick something up, a new product that we're in- introducing uh, on your way back home to on an occasion basis target users to essentially cross shop across uh, the services and then have a membership model that has the most content, right? Netflix is the top entertainment uh, subscription bundle out there because it's got the most content. Our content is delivery, grocery, um, uh, alcohol, mobility. We have more content to essentially deliver in our subscriptions we think that positions our subs- subscription product long-term with a competitive advantage over others, which drives frequency, which drives retention, which improves kind of this, all of all of the economics of the business. So now it's about kind of, we have our strategic position exactly where we want it. If we execute against it, we just think we have certain natural advantages that others are going to have a really hard time matching. Um, let's talk about some of those non-food verticals a little bit, um, you know, grocery, alcohol, and convenience have, um, you know, obviously a lot of similarities, but then there's kind of these differences in terms of frequency and basket size and uh, regulatory environment. Um, I guess, how does that, how does all that play out into, uh, in terms of what you're really prioritizing most here uh, and, you know, and going after is just uh, big opportunities going forward? Well, I think that the the design that we have and is that it's exactly like you said. Each of these each of these products actually, when you get into the detail, is quite distinctive. You know, it's you, you can kind of step back and say, well, we're delivering stuff from a box that you call a store and a restaurant. Isn't that different from a store? But it's much more complicated than that as far as inventory goes, the nature of the delivery, what the package sizes are, the timing demands of that delivery, et cetera, uh, so that. We essentially have a team corner shop. We own 51% of corner shop. It's run by a group of entrepreneurs that are absolutely second to none that have been optimizing the grocery model in Latin America. And Latin America is a super competitive market, super kind of cost uh, conscious market as well. And we're going to take all of their learnings and essentially and their service and, and expose it to the Uber audience. Uh, and hopefully, you know, when uh, our Drizzly deal closes, same thing. Alcohol, you know, I think from an operational standpoint is a little bit simpler, but from a regulatory standpoint is very, very complex. And again, we have a team there, a Corian team, that really have gotten the operations, the merchant relationships, and the regulatory part together and are just running in all cylinders with a great brand. So, that kind of these teams that are completely focused, the mobility team completely focused on mobility and adjacencies, the delivery team completely focused on food, and then exposing these adjacencies to uh, an ever-increasing audience, 
we think that essentially is a formula for success. Okay, great. Um, so we have about four more minutes left. I want to hit on um, one more topic, uh, a big topic, which is regulatory. Um, and then also do a quick word association at the end. You can't get away without that. Um, so first, just on regulatory, um, you know, what's your view, uh, you know, versus kind of nine to 12 months ago? Um, how do we interpret the various comments uh, from the Labor Department over the last few weeks? Um, and I'm bundling all this together here. Um, and then if you move, uh, if the industry moves more on a state-by-state -state basis, um, Will the administration have less appetite, in your view, for legislation at the federal level? Well, I think I think we need to have engagement, both at the federal and local level. Uh, and I do think that most of our regulation tends to be local because we're, you know, cars and couriers on the ground, city by city, state by state. And the fact is that every state has different needs. Uh, so I think anything that's optimized at a, at a federal level is just not going to get the needs on a state-by-state -state basis. Uh, and the fact is we need to have both dialogue. So we are having, obviously, post-Prop 22, what is common to every single one of these states is that our drivers want to retain flexibility and they want the marriage of flexibility and some of the benefits that Prop 22 brought. You know, now... A, a state like New York or Massachusetts, they're going to want different things. And it's a dialogue that has to be held by us, lawmakers, uh, uh, and, uh, and, you know, labor as well. And we think if we bring all those together, we can get to solutions that preserve what drivers want the most, which is flexibility, and marry that with some of kind of the protections that you associate uh, with employment. And we think that's the right way to go. That's the model that we have with the worker model in, in the UK as well. So we think the push is going to be that direction. Uh, in that direction. I can't tell you what's going to happen locally or federally. We were in active dialogue with both. But as long as, you know, the, the voice of the driver is heard, I think we're all going to be fine. And, and do you think that future costs uh, will, will be able to be managed in a similar way to, to what you've uh, seen in California over the last several months? Yeah, listen, there's real costs associated this, with this because we're giving benefits to, to drivers and couriers, but we think that our model has pricing power. Uh, and we think that the costs actually get us a return because driving becomes more attractive. Uh, it becomes a bit more stable. Uh, we expect to see retention for drivers come up. So while it's a cost, it's a return here. It's a more stable model going forward. Uh, and, and we think it's certainly worth the investment. Okay, cool. Um, quick word association. I'm going to give you right. 10 words. You just say the first thing that comes to mind. Lovely. Uh, re reopening. A beautiful thing. Driver supply. Uh, moving in the right direction. San Francisco. Moving in the right direction, I hope. Needs some work. Delivery landscape. Uh, big and getting bigger. Lots of competition, but we're confident. Car shortages. Uh, we'll take some time to resolve. Super app. A beautiful thing. Hmm. Uh, regulatory. Uh, a fact of life and appropriately so. Germany. Opportunity. 
EBITDA profit, entering the second inning. All right, last one, go get. Our future. All right, cool. We're going to leave it there. Thank you, Dora. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining. All right. Have a good night.